0: Hello and welcome to the Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today I'm speaking with Matthew Perkowski. We talk about crypto, money in the state, sovereignty and global arbitrage, multipolar traps, cooperation and defection, information warfare, complexity and catastrophe, time preferences, and fitness versus truth. First, some brief announcements. I've changed my mind about early access to interviews as a patron benefit because the longer I think about it, the less I like it. The conversation is where true magic happens, and is also experienced by two parties, so restricting that, even temporarily, feels too zero-sum to me. Interviews will remain free and available to all as soon as they are released. I've updated the Patreon page to reflect these changes. If you're a fan of the show and you're not already a supporter, you can fund more conversations like these on Patreon. Lastly, in the conversation you're about to hear, I misspoke and attributed Nietzsche's theory of the origins of justice to the birth of tragedy, rather than on the genealogy of morals. Later on, I also said Daniel Hoffman rather than Donald Hoffman, so if you happen to hear this, Donald, uh, that's my mistake, and thank you again for sending me those papers. Okay, with that out of the way, I give you my conversation with Matthew Perkowski. Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is Matthew Perkowski. Matt, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Alex. Good to be here.
0: Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, so, for those of you who uh, maybe aren't denizens of Twitter like Matt and I, uh, Matt is a very well-known, um, I guess, well, I'll just say denizen of Twitter himself, although he has... Uh, you know his own substantial, I'd say, uh, career as well as academic background um, that backs a lot of the the things that he says that people find to be um, very interesting and very provocative uh, and very enlightening. But I am just going to let the man introduce uh, himself here. And Matt, if you would please just tell us a little bit about um, who you are, uh, how you view yourself in the current intellectual space, and maybe a little bit about uh, your background, and who some of your main intellectual influences are.
1: Sure, yeah, no problem. Um, it's a little bit of a journey, but you know, at a high level, I've always been extremely curious in terms of understanding the deeper influences that govern and, and constrain and, and give rise to human behavior in all of its facets. And you know, that early in my life led me to studying evolutionary psychology. So back in my undergraduate days, Uh, I was at Yale and I was at their uh, comparative cognition laboratory uh, studying primate behavior there, trying to understand the trading behaviors and evolutionary aspects of what is typically considered, uh, quote unquote, irrational human behavior in the economic domain. Um, So the evolutionary psychology of economics, game theory, uh, did some agent based modeling at that point in time as well, which got me into complexity science trying to understand systems from a perspective that is uh, quite novel, uh, still hasn't really penetrated the mainstream in terms of understanding the uh, bottom-up interaction of relatively simple agents and the complex phenomenon that emerged from that. Um, that led me into a career in software engineering. Uh, had to pay the bills for a while, decided to go that route over academia. Um, I think I'm somewhat of a canary in the coal mine in terms of uh, my disagreeableness and the fact that I, I kind of felt something in the air in terms of a closing of the intellectual, uh, of the acceptable intellectual surface area of exploration in academia. Even even back then, which was around 2008, um, decided to go into technology for a while, um, worked for a few different places, most notably your audience would be familiar with Netflix Um, I was there, I was on a team that was basically responsible for developing all the UIs, um, that go out onto embedded devices, uh, as well as your TV, the things you'd watch in your living room. Uh, And then, you know, the second half of my time there, I was working quite extensively on trying to understand what the future of that market would look like, what the future of that technology would look like, trying to understand, um, what it means more deeply to innovate with respect to um content experience, um leveraging sort of the psychological design background there. Went out on my own, started doing consulting after a little bit of a time in, in the startup world as well around 2016. Um that took me around the world, uh spent a lot of time in China at that point in time. I don't talk too much about that work. Um got a lot of perspective through that work, but yeah, what I was doing is, is a little bit um yeah. It's not something I I talk about too much, but it was in the technology space. Um, I went in with very wide eyes, uh, very positive about relations between the United States and China um, in terms of what could be accomplished through uh, business partnerships and and hopefully trying to create a vision for the shared future there. And after a couple years or two, three years of exposure along that front, um, my perspectives changed quite significantly uh, or evolved, let's say. Um, During this period as well, I was very interested in in cryptocurrencies, I've been interested in Bitcoin since its emergence in 2008-2009, I didn't buy in until a bit later, but that's also been a pretty large part of my world over the past few years, trying to understand the way that we represent value as humans, trying to understand how that intersects with my earlier research on what is considered, quote unquote, rational or irrational human behavior. Um, the limits or capacities of of how we represent value and how that changes the way that we uh, are able to build structures of varied complexity atop those fundamental tools we use for representing value. Um, And that kind of outlines or traces some of my current interests Uh, in terms of influences, contemporary influences or past influences. um, You know, I, I, it's hard to say exactly what those are because they kind of range. But um, somebody who I think is is dramatically or woefully underrated and, and who's a huge influence on me that I would like to uh, perhaps upregulate in the in the popular consciousness is a guy by the name of Stuart Kaufman, who's a theoretical biologist, a really brilliant mind. Um, he wrote this book called *The Origins of Order*, which is initial his initial magnum opus. Uh, I would say a bunch of his research into theoretical biology and uh, various uh, models that could be used to probe and explore the landscape of uh, emergent complexity and evolution. Uh, I think those models were way ahead of their time. I think they have a lot to say about our current state of reality, especially when you try to incorporate uh, the effects of uh, diffuse changes, such as the addition of a, a layer like the internet into our culture and society. Uh, so he's a big influence. You know, I've been a student of philosophy my whole life. So, uh, you could basically say any major philosopher in the canon is, is an influence um, in, in, in their own right upon my thinking. Uh, generally speaking, <laughs> a little bit, uh, you know, I don't know. You know, people like Darwin as well made a large initial impact. For a while there, I was also sort of quite intrigued in the new atheism movement, although you know, that had an influence, but I'd say the influence is not necessarily direct influence these days. It, it, it influenced me in so far as I realized, um, it actually kind of led me into conclusions that are contradictory to that movement eventually. Um, but that was certainly an, evo- you know, an evolutionary influence on my thinking. Um, before that, you know, <laughs> ideologically I was raised Catholic. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's a, there's a whole constellation of influences, but hopefully that traces some boundaries of, of the thought and we can perhaps unpack some more specific exemplars as we go along.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, and that, uh, gives us plenty of, uh, of starting starting wood to work with here. Um, and you know, when I messaged you originally, I, I, I'm actually glad to hear that, uh, I at least had some, uh, proximity in terms of my observations about who you are based on entirely, uh, you know, online threads and things that I found your basically your presence on the Internet, more or less uh, in asking you to come on and talk about decentralization and the Internet and consequences, uh, you know, not only structurally, but also epistemologically uh, of these things. It sounds like you've spent a very long period, at least of your adult life, thinking about these kinds of problems and in areas of research uh, that are related to them. So, uh, where do I want to start then based on that? Um, well, so I'm not going to ask you about your work in China, although I am curious, <laughs> uh, just because you said that you were keeping that, uh, little hush hush, which is fine. Um, and, uh, perhaps, uh, more of that will be, uh, will be relevant, um, long and in, long into the future. Um, but I wanted to say, um, About your interest in cryptocurrency, Um, this is uh, something that I haven't actually spent really any time talking about on this podcast, uh, but has also been an interest of mine as well. Um, I think anyone that looks into crypto very, uh, very deeply understands that the technology provides an opportunity for building out a substrate that will fundamentally change the organization of, I mean, pretty much anything that you can think of. Uh, in society, in particular, anything that you can put value on, uh, there's there's a an opportunity for um, demarcating and exchanging that value uh, within the crypto space. Uh, now, for me, uh, as someone who is more um, politically minded um, and is asking questions related to, well, how should we set up our regimes? What is the best uh, arrangement of governance? For human flourishing, how do we make the ideas that we've inherited improve or maybe we need to do away with them. All of these things to me are very uh, intimately related to this additional layer that we've added to society called the internet, uh, which is sort of freeing up uh, where there were previously geographic boundaries to these kinds of questions that were delineated mostly by nation states. With the rise of the internet, you have this whole layer on top of society uh, that's independent of uh of the physical constraints of of where people are on the globe um and so i wanted to ask you you're probably much deeper into cryptocurrency than i am uh i got uh, really into it um maybe three or four years ago learned a lot about bitcoin learned a lot about ethereum read all the white papers uh and have sort of just been a casual follower of uh of that space for a long time now but i haven't recently gone really into the depth of uh of some of the new development uh projects that are in place some of the new ideas that people have about uh, about alternate governance structures things like uh you know putting things like citizenship and passport et cetera, on, on a blockchain making those into smart contracts you know selling people citizenship these are just different examples of applications of current things that we have instantiated with nation states that could be instantiated in the form of smart contracts uh, how do you think about cryptography and its role in uh, in changing uh, human governance? And have you spent a lot of time thinking about the ways in which the systems that we now have um, could be upgraded or even superseded by the inclusion of cryptographic technologies?
1: Sure. Yeah, I've spent quite a while thinking about that. I've written I wouldn't say extensively yet on it. I have a lot of writings I haven't released, although back in 2018, I did begin a series of essays called Crypto Beyond Capitalism, um, The Rise of Distributed Valorism, um, for anyone who might want to get sort of a high-level take on on where my head was at then and, and a little bit of a uh, crystallized vision of of kind of how I see that in the abstract. But to zoom out, and you know, I, I think the first statement that I have to make, because I, when I talk about we say cryptocurrency, right? Or you use cryptography there very specifically. Um, but, you know, when we talk about the domain of cryptocurrency, uh, people's mind immediately jumps to um, metaphors around economics, thoughts around money, um, thoughts around a very specific history of the way we represent value. And, you know, to me, to really get at the question of how this relates to our political sense-making apparatus and our political institutions and mm-hmm. our capacity. As a species to actually collectively navigate space and time um, in an adaptive manner, you have to zoom out a bit and you have to look at you have to look at money as something slightly different than what most people think it is. you have to look at money at least from my perspective as a subset of evolutionary linguistics. you have to look at this this idea of the fact that uh, well, what is this fundamental problem we have as a as a semi usocial social species that is simultaneously trying to navigate the fact that we are separated from one another in space and time that we are individuated observers that can take our own paths, can experience the world in our own ways, develop our own preferences, have our own encoded biological personalities uh, with their own you know with, the associated tendencies towards different behaviors, different uh, values, different ways of seeing the world, and then simultaneously the fact that we have to take all of those threads and uh, connect them in some way through some medium of sharing information about those past experiences about how they bear on the present and how we wish to stitch them together to create a future collectively in this in a space of quote unquote collective agency or what is known as politics, the political realm and you know, when you look at the history of humanity, it's not the case that we always had institutions of politics and it's not the case that we always had money. Uh, But it is the case that it's very hard to separate the emergence of humanity itself from the emergence of language, right? Uh, And so, you know, language is one of these things where, you know, we can talk about other animals and their capacity to communicate to some extent, but the elaboration, development, sophistication and complexity of our language is quite unique uh, I would say it would, it would be very hard to disprove that thesis in terms of, you know, that is a defining characteristic of humanity. And the interesting thing about language is that language is this this tool that we use to navigate that intersubjective space between the threads of our individual experience and the collective immersion, collective um, abstractions we're able to generate to help us cohere as um, groups of more than one individual or even more than one tribe. Uh, or in theory, more than one nation. But, you know, at some point it seemed to be the case that that these tools, this tool of language, uh, it wasn't necessarily sufficient for um, for homogeneously governing all of the ways that we need to communicate about reality. It seemed to be the case that at the collective abstract level, we needed something that was a more slow-moving uh, tool to allow us to talk in a very nuanced way about uh, the long-term decisions that would affect a community, out of that grew this, this lineage of political systems. And then on the other thread, we needed a tool to allow us to talk about uh, finite transactable interactions and the sort of embodiment of our tendencies towards reciprocity. Uh, the ability to understand that if I helped you or I created something of value and then exchanged it with you, uh, that should in theory, that information about reality should not be lost whatever information there was in my ability to create something of value and bring it to the table in our society, uh, that shouldn't be arbitrarily taken advantage of. That shouldn't be worth nothing. That should be in theory represented. Whatever it required me, whatever was required of me to actually create that value and bring it to the table should somehow be encoded in um, an accounting of of the past so that we could navigate the present and future. And so you know, I, I, I identify that tension that tension between those two spaces as this divergent place in history, where uh, where where money and politics sort of diverge, despite the fact that they originated from the same uh, sort of solution space evolutionarily speaking. And what I find really fascinating about the world of crypto is that you know it's it's I don't see it as a it's not arbitrary that we're seeing these spaces of of money and um, these systems of uh, Uh, consensus and different modes of establishing consensus, it's not arbitrary that we're seeing them weave back together, because what we're seeing is an evolutionary pressure on the current systems that had separated these two uh, domains of communication. And we're seeing evolutionary pressures that imply, effectively, that their separation is an insufficient mode of social structure uh, for adapting to the level of complexity that we're presently seeing in the world. And so, what we see, therefore, is um, that evolutionary pressure uh, giving rise to many experimentation, much experimentation in the space of, well, how do we potentially weave these two modes of representing the world back together into a fabric that is uh, sufficiently dynamic and of sufficient integrity to capture both of these necessities at these two different time preference and spatiotemporal scales of society? and more closely integrate them so that they don't have as much dissonance, conflict, um, and tendencies towards sort of self-termination as, as they presently do in terms of the interaction of money and politics. And so I would say like, I would just, I would pause there just to say that like, that would be the frame through which I would enter this conversation. Uh, and I'm happy to let you respond to that and, and take this wherever you feel is, is interesting.
0: Sure. So, uh, well, thank you for uh, framing your perspective on, uh, thinking about it that way. Uh, I, while you were speaking, uh, was recalling, uh, actually Frederick Nietzsche's theory of justice, uh, which he articulates, uh, in the birth of tragedy, uh, that being, um, that justice basically begins with the tracking of credits and debits of, of debts, uh, and, and credits and so uh from his perspective even the idea of justice itself comes out of this um of this very fundamental dynamic of exchange essentially and also of uh of keeping a, a shared ledger now obviously those usually a peer-to-peer ledger between two uh, to individuals, we're not talking about a, a decentralized uh, ledger that's replicated on you know every single node in a network. But uh, it's interesting to me that you said that there was this sort of separation, uh, and you view the projects now that are going on as kind of an attempt at uh, a reunion of these concepts to uh, diffuse some of the contradictions and some of the oppositions that are in place, uh, as a a higher
1: order synthesis.
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I, I wanted to bring up though, that, um, is kind of a, a wrinkle in that, um, that I think we should work out though, is that, uh, it's not simply that there, um, that the economic realm and the political realm are viewed as separate and distinct, but actually that, uh, in a way, Um, they're sort of competing to commandeer one another. Um, And so I view nation states, for example, to be in basically competition uh, with with corporations uh, for various kinds of power. Uh, There are certain kinds of power that due to the advent of sovereignty and uh, other things like that uh, are not available to corporations in the same way that they're available to nation states. But largely I view them to be Uh, in competition and the other thing too is that uh, at least for the currencies that we currently have or at least that we had before the the invention of bitcoin uh those currencies have all historically been in the service of some state and so uh if you're no if you weren't trading in gold or you weren't bartering in something else uh then whatever currency you were using historically had to be backed by some sort of regime uh usually by military force and so uh it's interesting to me that you you posited that there is this separation there because I view it more like the fact that currency has sort of been in the service of various political entities uh as an instrument uh for them to extend their power, for them to exert power over others, for them to maintain uh control. And so obviously, you know as any Bitcoin evangelist will tell you, the exciting thing about uh cryptocurrency, the rise of crypto is just that now we have, uh, once again, a currency that is not tied to any particular state or institution or or ruler of any kind. Um, So what do you you think of that?
1: Yeah. So when we're talking about the relationship between what we presently call the state as a sort of path-dependent function of the Treaty of Westphalia and, and the history that Flowed from that, uh, we're talking about the interaction between that category of entities and what we're talking about as, as money, or you know, as as a controllable mode of representing valid value uh, within the auspices or under the auspices of the state. Uh, we have to place that historically uh, within the evolution of money. So when I'm talking about you know the pattern, the initial frame that I, I stated. You know, that's a very deep frame. That's a frame that extends as deeply as the history of language and, and complex human society, right? And, and not society as in the idealized institutional society, the society as in, um, you know, Dunbar level one, two group organization society, early proto society. Um, and the fact that, you know, when we talk about instruments like a quipu with the Incas or, or shell economies, These were pre-state. They they antedated the states, the idea of a Westphalian state, the concept of a of a conscious political people uh, by thousands of years, right? So, you know, fast forward to our current position, and if we're looking backwards, we have to look through these layers of history. And so the first layers of history we're gonna see are the most recent layers of history associated with the relationship between money and the state. And within that first layer of history, looking backwards through time, I do agree in many ways that the uh, relationship between those two domains has been characterized by uh, state entities, uh, which were essentially, um, you know, essentially evolved out of the consolidation of, of, of tribal power around particular geographic boundaries right um and then the desire to maintain some sort of controlled stability hierarchically controlled or top-down controlled stability within those geographic boundaries um to understand the extent or to, to manipulate or understand or control the flows within their boundaries right and to establish um rules governing what constitutes uh valid transaction um in the eyes of a ruler, a centralized ruler a centralized authority right someone to provide seniorage for that money, so to speak um, so within that context, yes like it, I, it is it is the case that the centralized you know the logical endpoint of the desire to centralize the mode of controlling value um, from the perspective of like general intelligence, especially, and this might seem like a little bit of a, di- of a divergence. Um, but, you know, I'm a big fan of the causal entropic forces mode of looking at intelligence um, or the idea of like free energy principle of intelligence, the that the mean? idea. So, so I can, this was just going to explain here, which is essentially the idea that when you're looking at a general definition of what intelligence might be at any emergent scale, A pretty good definition seems to be the kind of thing that can look at the modes like that can forward project the modes of um, how its agency, how its potential ability to express itself in the future might be constrained by its environment and that might terminate its ability to live and escape that to keep continuing its ability to play the next round. And there are some deep mathematical models to show that this, this very simple principle, if encoded, into, uh, in, if encoded into agents that have no real pre-existing ability to understand what game they're playing or what their evolutionary landscape is, these agents can, can perform quite, quote unquote, intelligently. And so the reason I'm going to try to tie these two threads together is that, you know, let's say that you are some other kind of emergent entity uh, growing within the pre-established boundaries of a state with their centralized currency, right? Well, what happens when the rules of that centralized authority, that state, its tax policies or its business regulations or whatnot, what happens when those begin to constrain the uh, forward-looking paths to survival of companies? Well, they're going to try to escape those boundaries. They're going to try to step outside the authorities provided by the previously uh, geographically encoded state or geographically rooted state. A geopolitically rooted state. Um, and so, you know, before we saw the rise of currency, you know, it was certainly, I mean, the first trend we saw before before that was, uh, you know, let's say uh, geopolitical arbitrage, right? Uh, essentially, uh, globalism is another word for that, right? The idea that if you are a large enough company, if you are a company that is gaining power and you have a vested interest in... Extending well, a maximizing your profits and b extending your lifespan for as long as possible. Um, it's completely, you know, it, it is aligned with those incentives to try to find a mechanism to escape any um, any authorities that might be arbitrarily or non-arbitrarily imposed upon you um, by any other container on that landscape. And so, states where these initially, you know, these containers who only competed with um, externally uh, emergent containers of that same order, right? So like humanity, initially, we were kind of geographically locked into wherever we were born. We didn't move around that much. Whatever cultures emerged, emerged at whatever rate they were emerging in their local domains. And then they came into conflict along borders. And then these borders at some point in time got kind of locked in. The state apparatus emerged. Currencies were sort of co-opted by the people managing those, let's say, let's call them cells, right? Right. Um, and within those cells, you had a sort of semi-stability with occasional warfare between these cells of uh, various scales so where one cell might merge and become two or one might collapse and be taken by multiple others. We can map that onto geopolitical language or you know, the language of warfare if we so choose. Um, my particular way of seeing things is, is very much in the vein of emergent biology, let's say, and evolutionary biology. Um, so like, I, I use terms like cells. Um, That being said, once you have a certain stability in that geopolitical structure, um, once you can draw a map of the world and not have to change those boundaries every uh, 20 years or so, um, it becomes the case that you have the perfect, you've set the stage perfectly for entities to be able to challenge, grow within those structures that can also eventually become sufficiently powerful to challenge those structures, especially if they can arbitrage value across the different cells, right? And so we saw this game emerge where corporations and you know, sufficiently wealthy people would attempt to arbitrage the policies and the various economic um, tendencies or capacities of these different cells to, to maximize their output in the game, to maximize their wealth, to maximize their potential to, to live and thrive. Um, a secondary effect of that was the fact that many of the people within these you know, countries themselves, uh, who didn't have the ability to hop between those borders so fluidly, uh, ended up kind of at the mercy, at least in the short-term scales, at the mercy of, of the sort of macro logic of these game players between the players at the state and the corporate level who are, who are you know, competing, uh, playing this game of, of cat and mouse, as you mentioned, right? As you kind of framed it initially, and this idea that they're competing with one another for uh, the reins of power and to essentially control uh, which of these entities will, will gain the capacity to um, truly determine... Um, the rules of the game uh, for the rest of those on the game board who don't have the ability to do so. Um, And within all of that context, within all, within that frame, within that history, uh, that, that story of emergence and competition, you know, you have the individual and you have, you know, the addition of the internet. And the interesting thing there is it's allowed people across all of those different cells to connect, organize, sometimes chaotically. I mean, there's many, Negative analysis of this, but Bitcoin specifically is a really interesting example because it is essentially, I, I like to consider it a supranational uh, mode of representing value. It's planting a, you know, it, it's attempting to essentially, like, let's say that you have this sphere of these cells that's embedded, you know, embedded structurally and deeply in its inertia in its institutions, their geographies and, you know, the physical, path dependencies like for example of just how arbitrary these physical path dependencies can be it's like we have washington dc because people had to physically go to a place in the world in space and time from the different states to discuss what to do at the national level because the entire institution was created at a time when we didn't have the tools that enabled us to do this remotely in any way right and so when we still have that extremely uh, Restrictive inertia, uh, and so we see a sort of end around. We see the creation of a system that enables the representation of value alongside a a very well designed algorithm and game theoretically balanced process to insh- like to to try to not ensure, but to make capture ab- uh, far less of a concern than it is with um, the capacity to print money, for example. So like you're talking about before, like if you are a nation state and you, that, you know, that cell has been corrupted, let's say by a sufficiently powerful corporation, um, the ability to uh, print money in a way that is uh, sustainable, let's say, comes into question very quickly because the corporate entity will, first of all, look at the landscape and say, well, if I can benefit from operations in country X by having them print more currency and giving it to, uh, you know, giving it to my own, if I, Simultaneously can encourage them to print more currency and I have co-opted policymakers to get that currency to flow into my coffers more effectively. I don't care about the long term future of that nation. I don't care about their inflation. I don't care about any of these factors in terms of the stability of their nation because I can jump to another cell globally because my operations aren't necessarily fixed or rooted in any of these places. And I can play this game of arbitrage and. Um, the cool move about Bitcoin is it says, no, we're going to game theoretically look at this. We're going to establish something that is resilient to attempts at such capture. Uh, it doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care uh, what modes of political control you pull any in any given cell in this game board, because the incentives will move away from you such that uh, you, the, more you, the, the, the more effort you put into trying to capture it, the more uh, effort it will take to do so, generally speaking um and so it's like we've created a new game board we've created a a game board that has transcended or 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 or, um game theoretically reset the value space let's say and this is this quote unquote trust anchor i mean this is why i look at this as, as bitcoin as the center of this entire new ecology and that's a whole other story but um which we can get into but I do think that that, that, is, it is, that is the key, right? You have, to, you have this transfer of computation energy with balanced game theoretic capture resistance, and it obviates a lot of the embedded advantages of the previous, that, the previous cellular structure that had emerged in the uh, geopolitical landscape and the corporate uh, behaviors that grew to parasitize that landscape. I guess I'll stop there. That was a that was a lot of a lot of different topics went in a lot of different directions, but hopefully that's somewhat coherent.
0: Mm. Um, well then allow me to take a moment to attempt to uh to digest some of that. So um one of the things that's interesting about uh Bitcoin uh that I think you said there um is that it does have this uh and, and this is I think more of the reason why, why the people who are real um, uh, Bitcoin fanatics, uh, in, in the, the real sense of the term fanatic, uh, are so enthusiastic about it, which is that uh, it has this really uh, unique story, something that pr- may not happen again, which is that uh, it was able to escape this uh, embedded cellular structure. Uh, that you described. I'm going to use your metaphor just to to make this easier. Um, and it did it uh, it did it very rapidly, and it did it in one fell swoop. Um, and so, it, in a way, you know, Bitcoin was sort of released on the world. And um, there is, you know, we can all speculate about whether or not it it could have been stopped, so to speak. I don't think now anyone would argue that it can be stopped. Uh, the proliferation, the continual growth of, of Bitcoin. You can debate whether or not Bitcoin will emerge as a global currency, or whether it will emerge as the top um, cryptocurrency in the world in terms of uh, market share. Th- that's all up for debate, uh, depending on who you are. But uh, no one can say that um, that it's stoppable at this point, or that there's any way really of of slowing it down through any kind of um, you know policy. Or monetary or regime restrictions. I think even if 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 a multinational um, organization, if a supranational organization decided to try to you know form a global collective to clamp down on Bitcoin, well, it would just go hide in the empty spaces where it's not being. Uh, as, as you said, it it moves away from whoever is trying to confine it. Um, and so the fact that it escaped in one fell swoop is really interesting because uh, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about Satoshi Nakamoto and who he might be and, and whatnot. But if he hadn't been anonymous, and perhaps if Bitcoin had been more um, more understood what what it actually was in its infancy, there's a chance that I think it could have been crushed uh, mm-hmm. in the beginning uh, when it was very very young. But at a certain point, and I would say rather quickly uh it disseminated throughout the world and and at, at you know after a certain threshold there's really nothing you can do to stop it and so then the question is whether or not these uh these existing entities are going to try to resist it which i think is um which i think is doomed to fail uh if you don't uh you know i i remember there was like some thing in the news a while back about india trying to ban bitcoin and it's just like well if you want to like uh, isolate yourself from the global economy, uh, and like the future of money, that's a good way to do it. Uh, it will basically just, no matter what, work to your disadvantage. Um, and so there's no real way around it. Um, as far as I can see from here, uh, and, and it, this is, uh, very, uh, fortunate that today is the, the Coinbase IPO <laughs> for, mm-hmm. for many who are not con- yet convinced. Uh, I was thinking today it would be, it it It'd be interesting to see how many people are buying coinbase stock who don't own any cryptocurrency i I bet they're out there and um that's yeah. a a wild contradiction to think about but uh the point <laughs> being the point being um where was i i'm
1: sure there's uh, some risk risk uh yeah
0: some some uh- you
1: know risk minimization exposure theory that one could hypothetically conjure up to justify that. But yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with you. That would be mostly contradictory in
0: terms. Right. So so if Coinbase is worth 100 billion dollars, <throat> right, and coin and, and right now uh, a Bitcoin is worth like uh, sixty four thousand dollars or something like that, maybe it's sixty two thousand, depending on how it moved today. Um, you've got this you've got this problem if you're a nation state on your hands, which is not now there's this other thing that's totally outside of you, that's not within your control. And that threatens to upend uh, your uh, well, I would say, I would go to so, so far to say, to upend your, your sovereignty, your economic sovereignty, um, because all these arguments about, you know, who's going to rule the 21st century. Uh, what are we going to do once we move into a multipolar world? Is it going to be the United States? Is it going to be China? Is it going to be some sort of, uh, you know, alliance between either of those countries and uh, in Western Europe or, you know, maybe Russia and, and Iran will play a role? Um, you know, which way is India going to go? It's more likely India, well, since India really hates China, it will probably, will have India on our side for at least a while, but all of these entities are their own individual um, states with their own mandates and agency. Um, and so when I think about the um, the multipolar world that we're moving into, I think that any uh, nation state that tries to resist the adoption of these cryptocurrencies and isn't actually in the game of enabling um, their citizens, the people to whom they, uh, they are ostensibly uh, obliged to improve the lives of, Um, if they don't take measures to actually improve the circulation of these things within their economies, uh, I think actually they're going to end up losing that game pretty heavily. Um, And of course, with the decline in the acceptability of kinetic warfare, for example, uh, and the rise of, uh, you know, being able to film everything and send it around the world instantaneously, um, as you probably know, and as it's been said many, many, many times the future of warfare is going to be uh, is going to be in cyberspace. It's going to be information war. It's going to be um, around uh, issues of uh, of transmission and bandwidth and who gets access to different kinds of brain shares, who has an audience, who does not. Um, and so. All this is to say that there's going to be uh a real problem for anybody um who's and the winner of the multipolar world the winner of the multipolar world if there is one if you could say there there would be one i don't know how all that works out game theoretically maybe you can speak to some of that um is going to fundamentally establish themselves uh as dominant through economic means first um, and that's sort of the contest we're in right now you know uh the united states if you're an american and you're pro america you want our GDP to remain the largest GDP on Earth because if you have GDP, that means you have purchasing power, which means that um, uh, by implication, your consumer market controls the world effectively because you're the one who everyone is trying to sell to uh, and that people are producing for. Uh, and so, I, I view um, I view Bitcoin as part of the information warfare complex. Um, it's obviously a type of information. There's a reason these, um, these networks are called protocols. It's exactly as you were saying in the beginning. It's part of transmitting uh, information, much like language. Uh, but in terms of uh, – sorry, maybe I should stop. I, I think I'm getting a little bit too ahead of myself. I wanted to ask you, how do you view the multipolar trap? Uh, do you think that there can be um, some sort of stable equilibrium that we will get to at some point in the future? Do you think it will go uh, for U.S. or China? Um, what are your views on sort of uh, um, geopolitical implications of the century that we're moving into?
1: Yeah, okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about um, that. I know that was like a, a whole fire hose. Not,
1: it, it, there's, yeah, there's, there's there's so much there to dig into. I mean, the multipolarity question is also, you know, it's a deeply related question to these questions of of representation of value and how that is tied into, like, how the virtual ties into the real, into the real world processes that we depend on um, for our, our life at individual scale, at, you know, community scale, at national scale. Um When the tie, I mean, it, it's fascinating, right? Because, like, this is currently demonstrated by many of these uh, types of resolutions that are passed at the international level, where we will say one thing when we're all in a room together, where the leaders of our nations are all in a room together, uh, because you can simultaneously gain the uh, perceptual credit at the political level by saying the right thing in terms of uh, cooperative language, right? And yet, the incentives for cooperation are almost non-existent at the practical scale. Like once, you know, once someone, once a Chinese leader goes back to China, and you know, looks at whether or not they're going to invest, you know, X in a coal plant or some multiple of X in uh, a solar plant, um, that's going to be a very pragmatic decision. And I'm not saying that they're not investing in solar because they actually, where it makes sense, they certainly are. But it has very little to do with what they're saying at the at these international conferences and it has very much to do with where their interests lie in terms of uh, sort of the regional economics um, of the energy needs versus the energy the capacity to provide energy in, in various regions of their of their nation and so it's like okay well unless you can have unless you have mechanisms that you trust and that are bound to physical infrastructure at a very embedded level um, and are also tied into the kind of geopolitical discussions we're talking about or we would in theory talk about uh, or need that that a a multipolar, a stable multipolar regime would necessitate, um, you're always going to have these problems of defection because to the extent that cooperation creates value. I mean, I think this is something that's not fully appreciated. To the extent that cooperation creates value, the incentives for defection go up, right? It's like the more money you create on the table, the more incentive there is anytime that the group leaves the room for somebody to come back in and, and steal some of that value, right? Um, so it's this dynamic where it's not, it's not as if cooperation actually leads to more cooperation by default. Um, cooperation of a number of parties in a multipolar game can very easily increase the incentives of any one of those parties to try to get away with um, not you know, paying their dues. So with respect to the, the crypto conversation or this other sort of distributed infrastructure uh, conversation, well, would we, in theory, do we think we would see a world where nations are willing to increasingly embed or would they have incentives to embed uh, protocols or technologies that could uh generate, let's say, robust signals, robust cooperation signals, you know, do we think that that's a reality ahead of us? Um, well, then you kick the cur- you, know, you kick the can down to this question of like, okay, well, how do you guarantee correct implementation? How do you guarantee that the algorithms that, you know, China says it's using to track its carbon emissions in, you know, let's say, I don't know, 10 billion different locations in China if you're talking about like cars and people and processes that might emit carbon in some way Um, or the United States, like it's a, it's a big lift. It's a big lift um, to get any sort of game theoretic coherence um, that we would truly believe represents um, the ability to solve a multipolar trap through um, through trust, (laughs) let's say trust in, trust in a given system. Um, And so then you're, you're kind of back in that same question of, that's always you know this historic question of okay, well, then it comes down to force it comes down to if there's no authority that can leverage force outside of that uh, to punish defection uh, then again you'll get defection um, I don't know it it's it, it's hard and then so okay, then just there's this question of you know when you're when you're talking about the way that. You know, just to loop in this question of warfare, because that was part of your initial question, your initial your initial thrust here, Um, you know, moving into this space of information flows, because really, when we're talking about power, we're talking about, at least in my estimation, we're talking about flow control, right? In the in the physical landscape, you're talking about control uh, and the flow of resources, goods, um, people across borders, boundaries. Monetary flows, things of that nature. Increasingly, all of this is digital, right? I mean, we still have food flows, we still have very real flows that are that are infrastructural, but we have increasingly um, increasing those infrastructural flows are also um, controlled by informational flows, right? There's a virtual model of the infrastructural network, that virtual model, if it can be corrupted, or diverted or changed, then you can potentially wage warfare on another nation um, through means that are not directly provable, and so you get back to the same question of can you embed trustworthy mechanisms in the virtual uh, in the virtual infrastructure that would uh, regulate those games uh, in the same way that certain emergent phenomenon like um, you know in the same way that certain games emerged in the nuclear warfare. In the domain of nuclear warfare to regulate those games but that, that was just an escalation game until we got to mutually assured destruction like do we end up in the same place with respect to just informational mutually assured destruction where you know so many infrastructural so many informational infrastructural systems are compromised and each nation can prove that to one another that you reach a deton. um is it possible? Because then, then, we get into these very strange—or not strange—we get into questions of computer science in terms of how difficult would it be to actually create uh, highly complex networks of information management associated with the, the, the infrastructure of a nation that are fully resilient to capture or to infection. Um, and if you ask any infosec uh, authority on that, you probably get very skeptical. Answer, um, even including cryptographic uh, utilities or, or cryptographic um, mechanisms uh, such as zero knowledge proofs and, and things of that nature, where you, where you could, in theory, create mechanisms to bolster our faith in other nations that they're doing what they say that they're doing and that they're not being bad actors. But I don't know. Like, I hope that there are. I think that there are reasons to think that we can improve. Our ability to um, to regress to outright conflict that negatively or adversely affects the lived you know the actual lives of large numbers of people on on the planet um, increasingly I suspect that some of these some of these game theoretic issues are are too deep to escape <laughs> fundamentally that we just we, we keep playing them out at different levels, maybe as you were initially alluding to. Uh, we first played them on the level of, of f- direct physical force. Um, perhaps you could say that, uh, through in terms of warfare, we just increasingly um, destroy lives more and more indirectly, right? Or, 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 or we exert the same amount of force just through the same amount of force in terms of necessary control. But we just do it through a multiplying number of fine-grained mechanisms as opposed to coarse-grained, obvious mechanisms. Now, is that better? I don't know. Um, perhaps, perhaps it's better. <laughs> like, I think we're into territory here where it's its just there's so much uncertainty that it's you know we can speculate and we can talk about it. But I don't know
0: if there are solutions that are obvious, at least. Yeah, well, so what you said there about defection actually ties nicely into the next uh, topic that I wanted to get to which is our sort of cascading epistemological crises. Um, Mm. And so (laughs) as far as there is an incentive uh, to defect, is there some sort of prize to win by offering uh, invalid or false or misleading information on any network in the information space, whether it's through a, a podcast or a video or you're just tweeting? or even, you know, writing writing up, um, uh, you know, falsifying various kinds of scientific findings. I mean, all of these things are related to this idea of how much can I get for uh, injecting corruption into the system and for defecting. Um, and the solution to what people are calling the epistemological crises that we're in Uh, Whether whether you're talking about, you know, fake news and disinformation or, um, you know, different kinds of propaganda projects that are going on, uh, you know, people building bot armies. I mean, whatever whatever methods people are using to to act out these these uh, these behaviors, the solution is ultimately going to make it is going to revolve around whether or not uh, we can make the cost of defection higher. Uh, than the benefit that is to be gained from it. Now, you are you seem a little bit skeptical that even, or at least on the, the level of nation-state infrastructure, uh, th- that question, that even cryptographic technologies uh, provide a way out for that. Uh, do you think that, for example, we are going to eventually get better at building um, social networks, various kinds of information sharing and dissemination networks peer-to-peer, that uh, put things in place to solve that problem uh, of defection in terms of, in the information space specifically by individuals. I'm I'm not here talking about nation states. Um, Do do you know of any solutions? Do you, uh, are are you aware of uh, any of the sort of forthcoming research on this? Have you thought about this question at all of uh, what to do with, uh, with basically a surfeit of information and a uh a uh, a surfeit of information and i would say a um a lack of uh i don't want to say wisdom but you know some information <laughs> you can build on and some information you cannot uh mm-hmm. and so you can you can almost define wisdom in that sense what do you think about that
1: yeah well that would be perhaps what i would define as as pragmatic epistemology, right? The idea that you could actually um, that whatever whatever your abstractions, whatever abstractions you may hold in your mind to represent reality, that those abstractions can be uh, transformed into actual physical behaviors that that achieve your desired ends, that actually that actually work, that those programs run in reality. Uh, they map to your behaviors, and if you actually can execute the behaviors with fidelity to your models, the expected output, uh, the expected outcome occurs, right? And that can be, you know, models as simple as those that are completely innate, like picking up a can and taking a sip of a beverage, as I just did,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, which is like, it's interesting, right? Because in theory, we could pause, I use that as an example, because in theory, we could pause it. The idea like this is the divergence between words like this is an epistemological question. Like I can say to you very easily, I live in a world where regardless of whether I use my hand to pick up the drink and pour it in my mouth, uh, nothing will come out. And I can just say that right? because those are words like they have no actual connection to the physical process that just occurred. And yet every time until this can is empty that I do this, at least to my knowledge, uh, my my inductive capacity to understand this. Um if I do the behavior of picking up the can, putting it to my face, tilting it such that gravity can take you know effect upon the liquid, that liquid is going to flow out the hole that's below the other side of the can. Right. It's just that's how it happens. And it doesn't matter that I told you one thing, um, except for the fact that if I can make the idea, if I can divorce that idea increasingly, like, you know, it's very easy and silly to talk about this in terms of a can and, and the liquid inside of it. But the more abstract the idea and the more removed we are from the consequences, the easier it is for me to uh, to smuggle in abstractions that I can use to arbitrage value out of you in the short term, regardless of the fact that the outcome in reality still doesn't change. Right. So like if it were possible for me to convince you that, you know, if I if, if you were to bet me that if I could convince you. Right. At a deep enough level such that you were willing to bet someone else $10 that when I took that drink of soda, nothing would come out. Right. Then, and I had, and I had made another side bet with that person or side deal with that person that they would just give me the $10. I can, you know, extract that from you all day. Right. If I can implant that idea in your mind. Um, and we very much, you know, we've always lived in a world where this is possible, but the difficulty threshold for doing, for, 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 performing this kind of um, abstract arbitrage via memetic parasitization, let's say um, it's never been easier and people have caught on and, you know, it's, it's increasingly defining these social spaces in terms of the fact that, you know, there are exploding cottage industries where people are making pretty decent livings out of convincing people to perform short-term behaviors that, that, you know, generate value for the person um, putting these ideologies out into the world. And yet overall, increasingly seem to be eroding our capacity to um, live in a society with one another, uh, to effectively operate uh, governance structures, to uh, potentially even conduct meaningful scientific inquiry into the world. Increasingly, it seems that way. And so, so this question of how we actually understand our epistemology, you know, you, you you know you framed it in terms of defection and punishment. There's a, there's another another way of looking at it in terms of is it possible to attract people to the outputs of the right or not the right? Is it possible to is it possible that the is it possible to set an example of a system where the consensus is so undeniably desirable that people simply don't wish to participate in the other games? Because I mm. think that 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 might be the only stable solution because it's very difficult to, to fully close all avenues to extracting value through um, sort of parasitizing people's tendency toward abstraction. Uh, it's increasingly true because, you know, just like, you know, people like Eric Weinstein talk about the, uh, like the, the, the twin, um, the twin nuclei problem, mm-hmm. right. Of like yeah. access to both, you know, the, the capacity to split the atom and the capacity to explore the cell through through genetic uh, inquiry and technology. Um, but also, you could, you could add a triad to that. You could say under, understanding the human mind, you know, the, the advances we've made in terms of behavioral psychology is also, you know, when you when you pair that with a tool like the Internet is extremely potent. And we've scaled, you know, where do most of these PhDs get hired eventually? They get hired. Companies who are essentially doing you know advertising right mm-hmm. trying to understand how to or you know social media uh, but you know social media is at, at root an advertising business at least it has been thus far, and so you have this you have this third nuclei so to speak of the ability to predictably and formulaically manipulate human behavior with intent uh, regardless of regardless of long-term outcome and regardless of fidelity to um, you know, fidelity to any sort of pragmatic reality. Um, so it seems very difficult to, to stymie that trend using any kind of, uh, by escalating the cost of doing so. Uh, it seems, that seems to lead very quickly towards authoritarian mechanisms of central control on these networks, which is what we see to some extent with, not even to some extent, to a large extent with the first generation of, of social media companies, with Facebook, with Twitter, um, we see an attempt to essentially excise or impose pain on those who are um, purporting models of reality that don't, that are that are not consonant with uh, the perspective, the, the approved perspective of those in control of those networks, right? Which begs the question, or it, it sort of raises the question, um, Whose perspective gets to, you know, who who gets to encode their perspectives into the, the fundamental mode of um, perception, let's say, of the network, because it, it kind of makes this assumption that the network has a point of view. Mm. That's a very strange assumption to make about a network that it, that has a point of view. The epistemology of humanity is, is far more decentralized than that, and the fact that evolution has preserved a variety of personalities and perspectives is evidence of the fact of utility of those differences in perspective, right? And so we're going directly against what we know to be adaptive in terms of the the evolutionary solution to this problem of of viewing the world and trying to make sense of the world. And and we're going directly opposite of that. And so then the question is like in this new generation of modes of communicating socially using the internet, or whatever the sort of uh, the um, whoever will carry the torch of of today's internet. uh, Is it possible to have, is it possible like what would it look like to have social communication in these online spaces that allows for emergent sense-making and and sort of like a multi-perspectival bottom-up truth mechanism so that it's not necessarily the case that, it's enforced in any other way than pragmatic capacity to act as a group using um, using these models that emerge through through what right? That's the question. And have we seen mechanisms that are powerful enough to allow for this yet? And it doesn't seem that we have. It seems you know it's still a very open question as to as to what kind of Pandora's box we've unlocked by connecting every single human being at the speed of light, fundamentally, right? Like, and if we're capable of creating protocols that allow for that new potential to be harnessed into something adaptive, as opposed to something explosive, um, self, something self-destructive, um, we're working through it. I mean, those protocols. You know, it would seem to be the case that huge part of this seems we need some sort of necessary compart like emergent compartmentalization Mm -hmm. you can't have purely open spaces like i think one of the one of the things that one of the aspects of current social networks that almost guarantees the fact that the only mode of control that will emerge is is attempted centralized crackdown is the fact that you have no naturally emergent structure that precludes um just complete connectivity or the fact that you have these swarm behaviors, uh, you know, it's almost a defining characteristic of the current moment. Um, The triggering of a, of a sort of a swarm of attention around an online space in an immediate, like for example, with what just, what just happened again in in Minnesota in terms of the fact that an event can happen and you can have riots or you could have large groups of people um, congregating in the physical world uh before someone is even processed let's say or before you know before anything happens before any of the traditional institutional mechanisms that attempt to try to sort out the complexity of that situation have even begun to swing into play right mm-hmm. and so why does that happen well it happens because you have such an immediate spread of that information so widely in space and time and you can focus so much human attention on that and like and the vector is occurring through a mode of communication like a anxiety and fear-based mode of communication that we know you know we know you know from our our research into neuroscience and and behavioral psychology that you know when you are in that mode like when you enter this fight-or-flight mode you're not using the parts of your brain that are capable of of subtle rational thinking you're not able to actually parse um parse apart the the modes of or the piece of information in that situation that you would need to um, to dissect and to analyze to really understand what happened. you know we regress to a purely reactive mode of being, and so it's like you have an open network and you create a completely reactive society and if you cre- create a completely reactive society, it seems very unlikely that anything stable emerges from that and that's you know circling all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, you know theoretical models by people like Kaufman show that this is the case and he calls it complexity catastrophe and i think that our current all of our current social networks are subject to complex are subject not only subject to but guarantee complexity complexity catastrophe um and a primary design principle of any network that wishes to facilitate a transition to a better place in our sort of uh, socially networked internet space needs to take that complexity catastrophe very seriously. It needs to take the implications of over-connected networks and completely open networks very seriously without without treating it um, in a tyrannical mode of, of attempting to centrally preclude communication, which is a very hard problem.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I always think to myself when I hear people uh, on Twitter or outside of Twitter complaining about the... Uh, You know, the level of discourse that goes on there that uh, if I was an evil genius and I wanted to um, and I was existing before Web (laughs) 2.0 and I wanted to create a technology that would drive the entire world insane, I would uh, I would create something like Twitter (laughs) where everyone can talk to anybody and there's no barriers uh, at all, Um, because that is literally how you would drive somebody insane, because all of their narratives, all of their worldview is shaped by a particular locale uh, that they have grown up in. Uh, And even if you've moved around a lot, you still have a particularity about how you came to be formed with the ideas that you have. Uh, And so if I take people from Pakistan and I take people from Minnesota, and I I just like one day, uh, you know, have them like, be introduced to each other serendipitously and, and they have to suddenly shake hands and there's no, there's no pre-existing context for why they would be talking or why they would be interacting with one another. Um, then yeah, you would very, it would very quickly devolve into, um, into a kind of insanity, especially if, if, if then the, the, the mode in which they were interacting was, uh, you know, the sharing of their, their opinions and beliefs and, and and ideas about the world. Um, and so, yeah, and everything you're,
1: you're, is like that, right? Everything in nature is like that. Everything in our world is like that, in the sense that, you know, anything that emerges and stabilizes naturally, bottom up, a fundamental aspect is 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 a kind of uh, mediated boundary, right? The idea that uh, the the idea that reactions don't just you can't get any complexity if you have a space that just allows all reactions with no um, with no limiting principle, with no energy barrier, so to speak, between those reactions, you just get, you know, essentially chaos. Uh, If you look at any sort of stable biological structure, you have um, layer upon layer of, of, of bounded uh, purpose, let's say bounded structure, bounded cellular structure, organelles, organ, you know, organs at, at higher orders. You have this, you have a, you have, you have you have bounded complexity, right? You have the complexity of a particular space that has evolved for a particular purpose and it mediates, it doesn't just open up all of that internal complexity directly as you're talking about. It's like the person from one nation doesn't just go to another nation and two people converse and immediately are able to connect with one another on all of the different dimensions of their preferences, on their history, or their language. That doesn't happen. You need a catalyst. You need... Um, and a catalyst can be something that either speeds up or slows down reactions, right? Um, so you need something to mediate this contact, because if you have unmediated contact, all you have is either you know, non-reactivity or pure reactivity, right? Mm-hmm. And, and either one of those, neither of those are neither of those are either on one hand non-reactivity, non-reactivity is, is uninteresting and is tantamount to death, um, and on the other hand pure reactivity is, is too interesting and also tantamount to death, right? so it's like, how do you, how do you create these, you know, what are these catalysts? What are these mechanisms that allow us to, or protocols you could think of them as that -hmm. allow us to realize the value of, of mediated interaction that allows for, let's say, increasing diversity of interactions to be something that is adaptive as opposed to something that is disruptive because this is the issue like we get we've become so incapable of publicly discussing because the spaces are so open and there are so many there are so many eyeballs looking at these spaces the language that is selected for and the way that we deal with and talk about these problems becomes so compressed that we can't say anything other than like diversity good or diversity bad it's like no it's like you can't speak that no chemist would speak that way about the probability of of certain reactions occurring um, in a soup of uh, a field of chemicals depending on you know it depends on their energy barriers depends on their concentrations and gradients it depends on a whole range of factors in terms of whether you're going to get reactions or you know synthesis of polymers or explosions right it's like it all depends on on very specific contextual factors and to the extent that we lose the capacity to have those conversations because everything has to be every conversation is had immediately in a reactive frame of reference in the most visible public space possible we are not going to we are going to completely lose whatever remaining capacity exists to navigate complex social spaces and we are not going to generate the increased capacities necessary. because this is the issue that it's not as if we're in some stable state or steady state where we're losing capacity to deal with these complex issues at a social scale. And the, the context uh, is remaining stable in terms of sort of latent complexity. No, the the complexity of the world is growing. We're opening up new vectors of, of, of difficult problem domains. We're opening up new possibility spaces of, of growth and death, right? We're we've created, uh, you know, I don't know, man, it, it's just, it's so strange to me that we are in a space where we've opened up the human genome and we are talking about the ability of people to subjectively define their biological sex, right? Simultaneously, those two worlds exist simultaneously. And, and at one level, we have this superpower and they're kind of related to some extent. It's like you could have the conversation saying like, and they are related insofar as the question is, is it possible to take control of that of that informational capacity and steer it in any direction we so choose? And, you know, that might be the case. I would probably bet against it just because probabilistically there are way more ways to fail, like infinitely more ways to fail in any of these domains than there are to succeed. But it's, But we can't even have the conversation at the level of understanding the mechanisms of genetic expression because we're so... Focused and captured by the entertainment value of the simplistic ability of certain people to push our buttons to get us to keep sort of coming to the little, uh, you know, to keep to keep pulling the, the handle on the slot machine. Let's say that is our phone, or is our computer, or is our television. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a very hard time freeing ourselves to be able to get to those necessary conversations or to develop the capacity to understand the world such that we can have those conversations. Like I don't, it seems like a very small subset of the world is becoming hyper intelligent and and gaining capacity beyond belief. And a very large segment of the population is being conditioned as as something like economic livestock. Um, um, And despite the fact that it's never been easier to learn uh, and never been easier to gain this knowledge, It's never been harder to carve out the attention or extract yourself from the pre-designed sort of economic extraction mechanisms that govern so many of our lives. So,
0: yeah. Well, I'm glad that you brought up um, the biological aspect there, because I think um, one of the things that's going on is that, uh, the biological inheritances that we have for understanding and processing the world and orienting ourselves given the information that's presented are severely outdated Uh, now I, i will make a caveat to that which is that i think that humans are actually pretty good at learning and so i think we actually are learning better how to interact with these systems and how to do more of a reversal on the relationship that we have to these networks so that we're not so easily being sort of pulled along by our limbic systems um but there is this problem which is that our evolved mechanisms for making sense of the world and guiding uh and guiding our direction at direct action are insufficient for dealing with this uh this super stimuli that we have in front of us um and so You know, maybe my my feelings of of being ashamed back when we were operating at Dunbar level numbers, just to give you an example, uh, were were adequate and actually accurate and and also helpful to me, um, because if I was cast out by my tribe, that meant uh, near certain death. And so it was very important for me to have a well calibrated sense of shame and that that shame corresponds to the people that are in my community, in my in my networks. Because without that, I don't continue on to the future we talked earlier about uh, one way of defining intelligence is not necessarily optionality, but the ability to um, defer uh, to defer destruction, basically. Yeah.
1: Um, that signal that feedback signal was was pure, right or not pure, but it was far less adulterated. The signal to noise ratio was far higher. Right, it was much more like the conversation we had about, you know, lifting the can to the mouth and what's going to happen, than it is like these hypermediated, uh, very abstracted loops that currently exist that we still treat the same way, despite the fact that there are some own, unknown number of economic actors also in that loop with us, mm-hmm. with with different incentives than us, or that, you know, in your example, right, like you and your immediate small tribe would have. Presumably, much more aligned incentives than the people within a, a current loop. Um, let's say that you run a Google search, and how some unknown number of people are are bidding for your attention at the you know the nanosecond scale, um, governing the perceptions that you're about to have and the path that you might then take in the world, and maybe those are aligned with your incentives, and maybe not. So it's just a much, much more abstract, much larger loop um, governing that process. Yeah. Sorry for interjecting. I just
0: even something as simple, it. even something as simple as like, you know, uh, online mobbing behavior, right? So, if I say something on Twitter and I suddenly get a mob coming after me, mm-hmm. those people are going to make me feel maybe depending on how I feel about what I did. Uh they're trying to make you feel ashamed. They're trying to sort of shame you and make you have negative affect uh to I wouldn't even say necessarily change your behavior since most of the people in that scenario uh, probably are never interacting with you again and probably didn't interact with you before that point. Um, but actually, it's like a sort of a form of uh, – uh, it It still operationalizes as a similar thing as it would in the tribe, which is that it's a mechanism for weeding people out, right, which is for removing uh, unsocial elements of that society, so if I do something bad at the Dunbar level, and then as a result of that, my tribe does kick me out and I am ostracized, well, for them, that's actually a protection mechanism in order to maintain the integrity of the society. Uh, whereas it, on Twitter, um, you can view it as a similar thing, but it's not necessarily about maintaining the integrity of, of that society. As you said, there are all of these... Um, they're they're still trying to get you out right you might get banned you you might just decide to to delete your account as a result of the stress whatever happens um but as you said like there's all these opaque um incentives at play and so you don't know who's who's piling on uh and and what their what their intentions are what their motives might be uh whether or not they even know why they're doing it so so maybe someone you know, back to like the cascading epistemology. Maybe someone told them that you said something or that you did something that you didn't actually do, and they're misrepresenting it. But then they go and they they decide that they need to go pile on anyway. Um, and so there's many layers to the way in which uh, all of these things can just get distorted yeah. and totally. What are the, ruin- what, are the
1: uh, what are the selection factors that are governing the norms that are that are in question, right? Because like like when you're talking about the Dunbar like lower Dunbar scale. Tribes, right, Let's or like, you know, a much smaller group of individuals or a group of, you know, or a community, let's say, um, the norms that have, that are, the, the norms that are in place that will determine whether or not the members of that society perceive a violation as warranting expulsion of an individual, those have been crafted over long periods of time. They're relatively unchanging. They are quite they are in quite close contact with a given embodied uh, and situated uh, context, a uh, lifestyle um, adaptive niche, let's say, right. And so there's this there's this consonance and stability there. Now, when you go into our current space, what happens if the selection mechanism is far more like something like uh, like Turchin's intra elite competitive dynamic, right? Like, if the selection mechanism is a meme that allows a group of people access to status, authority, or economic advantage, right, if, if that's the selection mechanism, well, that can change on a dime, right? And you, you can, these things can change very quickly. They can emerge very quickly. They can become quite uncorrelated from any pragmatic reality other than the, the sort of um, intuitive desires of those who are swept up in that cascade. Um, and so you can see these sorts of expulsions that occur not because of violations of any deep abiding or adaptive truths, but just because of the fact that you fall afoul of someone else's logic of, uh, let's say, in the, in the case of interleague competi- inter- competition, um, their sort of local logic of um, carving out a new niche in an overcrowded space of authority or power or competence.
0: Yeah. And and like uh, you were talking earlier, uh, you mentioned the bifurcation of our population that's sort of happening. Um, And one way of phrasing it uh, that like you did uh, is that there's sort of like the online people and then the the not online people (laughs) Um, or, you know, in Twitter parlance, these would be like the normies. Um, now obviously not everyone who's online is necessarily uh, plugged in and there are different gradients, uh, you know, whatever, however you want to, you want to decide to parse that. The point being that there is this, uh, weird dynamic that I think yourself and myself and others who are spending more of our time online and are trying to create things online and so forth, um, have become attuned to, which is that, uh, the, the 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 world that we're moving into is going to assign less value to the material space as we move forward. Um, and increasingly, the people who are going to be evolutionary... Well, so I wanted to ask you actually first, what kinds of people do you think are more optimized for functioning in this environment? Um, and... What kind of effect do you think that that will have on the population? Because uh, you talked earlier about this issue of like economic livestock. And one of the anxieties that I have, for example, as an American, is just uh, like I care about America. I like this place. Uh, I think we're a pretty special place and I like the people in it. And most of the people that I know are American. And so I care about them, too. Uh, But there is a sense and I'm going to just use specifically the American context here, that there is this uh weird thing going on with, with economic livestock and with exploitation. And the way that I see it going on is that a large amount of the, um, not only capital flows, but also social capital flows, prestige and so forth is moving to those who are well adapted or have positioned themselves well within various online spaces. Uh, And away from the people who are focused on, let's say, you know, building bridges or delivering your groceries or, you know, getting your Amazon packages. Those people are still necessary for all these other people who are living online or making a living online if you are uh, to keep to keep going, because we all have we're all biologically embodied and we're all in a physical location. And so we need those things to keep chugging along uh, rather peacefully, I would say, also to not have any disturbance in our operations. Um. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's a sense that a lot of those people are going to be left behind. And the anxiety that I feel is also that if I don't sort of step up and try to be more part of this world and try to um, achieve some of those gains that are out there and potential, um, that I would be left behind too. And this, this ties very closely into also what we were discussing about the outdatedness of nation states. Like it's not clear to me, for example, that amazon or walmart or twitter or facebook or any of these ostensibly american organizations actually have any real interest in the lives of the american people for example and in making those lives better uh and improving them because of the fact that they view themselves as these um as these supernational organizations kind of like bitcoin um i mean you could say people say they're multinational right But but really, they're they're not really operating within the confines of any one territory. Mm -hmm. Um, And so how do you think about sort of the hollowing out of America uh, that's happening? And what do you think about this sort of bifurcation of the population uh, that's happening? Because I think, you know, especially with like the rise of remote solutions to various kinds of things and and, in subcultures like nomad, like digital nomads and so forth. There is this sense that there's this large group of people who could just sort of detach, right, if they have the economic means from any particular, uh, let's just say, national locale and just sort of move around the world to wherever the incentives are set up better for them. Uh, How do you think about those those issues?
1: I think one lens to apply or the, the primary lens that I tend to apply to many of these questions is one of time preference and the way that certain processes uh, select for different time preferences uh, and the way that those time preferences then shape who is able to capture the most value on a given landscape. So I'll give you a couple of concrete examples. The first is I would say that the dynamics that you're talking about in our current transition are analogous to something that has existed actually for quite some time that I will now describe, which is one of the reasons why it's been very difficult for us to compensate uh, anyone in our society whose value manifests itself in physical reality across long periods of time. So teachers would be a very good example of this, right? It's very difficult to find appropriate compensation schemes that actually um, map to the impact that teachers have in our world. I'm not saying that all teachers are underpaid or whatnot. I'm simply saying I'm, I'm noting the fact that uh, when you have a group of people whose, whose purpose it is to shape minds that then go into the world to create value, it's very difficult to tie back the value created to the people who initially uh, performed a task that, you know, was sliced across different subjects perhaps and one year intervals across eighteen to twenty whatever years right it's hard to it's hard to difficult it's complex to allocate that so so we have this issue where okay well what happened there we see a pattern where people whose value manifested slowly didn't get anywhere near as much of an economic pie of the economic pie as those whose value could manifest more transactionally and more quickly um, this was Let's say we're reaching the apotheosis of this to some extent through the financialization of of much of our economy, uh, where it begins to make sense to dig increasingly straight trenches through the earth at the cost of billions of dollars to gain nanoseconds on another uh, another party in terms of your trading behavior. Um, Literally like moving mountains (laughs) to, to move information slightly more quickly. Uh, It's the definition of of sort of low time preference driven economics. Um, And what I'm what I'm kind of getting at is in the same way, we have an entire base layer of physically associated processes that are actually quite necessary. Like we need people to take care of physical infrastructure on our roads, on our bridges, to perform like medical procedures, at least for now, um, care along a number of dimensions, physical care. Um, you know, psychological care, home care, all of these physical processes, right? Um, and even the physical processes, like for example, law and medicine, that were quite recently the kinds of professions that people, if they had, you know, immigrated here, for example, and wanted to ensure that they could get a pretty strong foothold in the economic ladder in our nation, would go into those accredited uh, domains, and those processes could could pretty much guarantee that you you have a, a sort of step function. Economically, that can then um, position you much more advantageously, and your family much more advantageously over time. Um, and now we're seeing a, a shift with this internet-mediated economy, where because attention has become so correlated with currency, um, we're seeing a, a shift where a huge amount of value, as you point out, is moving even away from this this base layer of, of previously uh, acknowledged uh, previously acknowledged value because our perception of what's valuable is shifting due to our attentional allocation. And so the same thing, as, as, as strange as it is, like relativistically, these base layer physical processes are increasingly becoming more like those pre, that previous category of processes like teaching that were kind of hard to actually allocate value to because they didn't map as closely or as directly to our currency, our, our currency mechanisms and our economic systems, right? Because the, like, currently, like, if you look at an online world, if you look at a social media, click-driven world, attention-driven world, the easiest things to compensate are those that directly gain attention and and give transactional value in that space directly, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that is the primary or one of the primary um, economic drivers of this, which is just this, this shift of time preference and the shift of the mechanisms that we use to convey value, which actually ties back into one of the reasons why I find Bitcoin so valuable. Because one of the ways that I like to characterize Bitcoin is also as a, you know, as, as a low time preference attractor, right? This idea that because this is deflationary structure, that doesn't necessarily, its logic doesn't depend on that increasingly high time preference of the rest of society. Um, it can actually allow people who want to dislocate from, this trajectory of increasingly, um, like of, of increasingly attentional acceleration or attentional acceleration, um, to in theory, if they act, if they if they if they believe that this is a sustainable path of storing value, to invest some amount of their time or an energy or money into this space, and then use that time increasingly to free themselves such that they can have conscious contact with whatever this accelerating space is, as opposed to being trapped by the economic logic of its acceleration, right? As opposed to saying, you know, I have to go move into a space of being constantly online because if I'm not online, I'm going to miss the next great economic opportunity. Um, how do we enable people to, to still stay connected with that first primary physical layer of reality, um, potentially uh, in their embodied lives, um, and actually see it as valuable. So I, I do think that we're seeing I don't think it's random that we see people like homesteading communities or um, other kinds of you know, sort of, let's say, reactionary communities gravitating around a culture like Bitcoin and simultaneously being suspicious of this acceleration into a completely virtualized domain where all value is, is increasingly determined by uh, whatever can get the most attention. Um, there's a deep suspicion of the fact that whatever can get the most attention isn't necessarily the most adaptive mode of, of life and that there needs to exist some kind of balance that can stretch our incentives across time and not just have a race at the bottom of, of the fastest and the first to cross an arbitrary you know finish line of, of attention-seeking, um, take the economic uh, gains primarily. Um, it doesn't seem like a sustainable society, so it's like there is this question of how do we actually allocate value across time horizons more in a way that isn't in a way that is in a way that allows us to, um, to retain our, to retain social complexity and adaptive capacity.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And like, uh, I think this is reflected in like many kinds of dystopic, um, visions that people are putting into art forms right now. Like, you know, I, ideas about sort of everyone kind of wireheading, Uh, and just sort of, you know, finding various ways, whether it's through TikTok or some sort of virtual reality headset in the future with haptic feedback. Um, and you know, you just sort of like leave most of society plugged into these devices. Uh, and over time that kind of undermines the very substrate that even makes, um, this kind of a complex society possible because people are too focused on these, uh, these other, well, the attention, uh component monetizing yeah. it's attention
1: like, it's like it's almost it's almost like 1984 is to the matrix as Fahrenheit 451 is to our actual likely path to this this sort of wireheaded space Yeah. Right? it's like yeah. we we were worried that it would be some sort of you know ai generated outside authoritarian force in in you know in con- contest with humanity and in reality once again we seem to be like you know following our own incentives to similar ends <laughs> Potentially, right? yeah. without even having to have some sort of, you know, evil outside authority or alien AI-driven life form to do it for, to do it to us. It's like we we seem perfectly content to lead ourselves down these paths. So well, at least at least to the extent we don't think about it, that's what seems to happen. So you know, how do we create culture? How do we create subcultures? How do we create um, art? How do we create uh, representations of value that allow us to, or at least some of us. I would say to keep to keep a connection. You know, it's it's I'm not I'm not against virtual spaces. I think that there's a, an immense amount of potential in the internet. There's an immense amount of potential in in, in information sharing and access to the world's knowledge. Um, automatic translation capacity across languages. You know, the fish capacity is is I would say a massively positive potential capacity that could flow from all of this. Um, but we need to find a way to rein in. Our tendency towards um, just accelerating any process that maximizes what I would consider an outdated symbol of value, which is like our, our current monetary symbols that are just completely dislocated from any um, any adaptive reality. Other than other than what maximizes, it's like sort of turned into a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of whatever maximizes. The production of those monetary symbols in some way right. and in some and through a perverse lens you could also see one mechanisms of maximizing the number of net symbols as as the capture of systems of governance and the coercion of those systems of governments to essentially continuously print more and more of that currency such that the entities in the economy that require that liquidity are satiated um, and again, to what end? Like, to what end does this actually facilitate the adaptive complexity of, of the society writ large? Um, it's well, hard to see exactly.
0: Sorry. Well, so so I'll just say that, for me at least, um, when I think about solutions to um, these, uh, these exploits in human operating systems that exist and that are increasingly economically relevant, uh, I'm biased towards philosophy. I'm biased towards... Um, trying to encourage a culture of consideration, right, about these things, about um, questions of the good, questions of what is it to to live a meaningful life. As you said, you know, there's going to need to be some kind of balance between the online world and the physical world. Um, And just in terms of, you know, if we're trying to optimize overall well-being, well-being, not even necessarily happiness, um, you have to have, there has to be some sort of attention paid to these questions about, What is the proper order of things? And going back to the point you made earlier about the nature of biological structures, uh, it holds here, too, that you can actually get things that are more beautiful and more complex if you choose to apply constraints than if you don't. Um, And so there is uh, there is strength in applying constraints. And I think that um, there are going to be technological solutions. uh, But. There also needs to be, at least from my perspective, the humanistic component, which is um, a a reevaluation of like, okay, well, maybe we don't have everything figured out. Maybe staring at my phone for seven hours a day isn't the best way to be living my life or to using my time on this earth. And so um, these these questions haven't yet uh, haven't yet been resolved, and I don't think they will be anytime soon. Um, So, Matt, we're uh, we're running up on almost two hours here. Um, and I don't want it to unfairly continue to monopolize your time. So I've got a few more questions here before um, before I let you go. If if you have it, <laughs> if you have a minute? Um, I wanted to get into the relationship between fitness and truth um, because we've been kind of circling around, I would say this throughout many of the threads of this conversation. Um, and, a lot of people tend to, I think, naively or, or maybe intuitively assume that um, that fitness and truth very much map onto one another, uh, and they don't necessarily. So I'm having Daniel Hoffman on, um, for example, uh, later, who's at UC Irvine, who's done a lot of research um, very similar to what you described. He's a cognitive scientist, and so he's done a lot of research with agent-based modeling and issue and evolutionary um, evolutionary algorithms and trying to see, well, which actually results in the net better payoff, uh, optimizing for fitness or optimizing for truth. And uh, he was nice enough to send me along actually some of his papers, which I'm going to be working through before we have our conversation. Uh, But the point being that um, from my understanding of the results of his research, which I haven't yet fully, uh, fully taken a look at myself, is that in evolutionary um, strategy games, the entities, organisms, or uh, whatever you want to call them, that are optimized for fitness, win out to 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 level to the point of extinguishing uh, against the organisms that are optimized for truth, basically a hundred percent of the time. Um, and so, uh, all this is a preface to to ask you this question about this epistemological crisis and the attention economy, and we 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 could talk about, uh, you know, the buzzword grifters, right? There's all these grifters uh, out there, and they're all grifting, right? And everyone who's—it it seems like at a certain point of popularity, uh, anyone who's on the internet doing anything interesting at all will get called a grifter, whether or not they are. Now, there are real grifters out there. Uh, I'm not going to take the time to define it right now. But the point being, um, if it's true that— there is this adversarial relationship between fitness and truth and that the uh, entities that are optimizing for truth will lose out to the entities that are optimizing for fitness. Uh, how do I square that circle? You know, like I've got a podcast. Uh, I'd like it to grow. I'd like it to do well. I'd like my audience to be larger. Uh, I would like, you know, this to expand into other things. And yet at the same time, uh, I have this ostensible not as sensible it's, it's true i have this commitment to wanting to spread the truth i I want to as best as i can have fidelity to the actual state of things um and yet there is a kind of functional truth that's different from absolute truth so in the very beginning of this conversation you brought up like picking up this cup right and, and the sort of cognitive processes and the perceptual um operations that are involved in moving this cup and questions about causality and and object permanence and whether or not there'll be water in it after you take a sip, all these things. Um, When I'm moving this cup, I don't have to sit around and actually understand the truth of the action that I'm taking. Like I'm not I'm not interpreting equations in my head uh, that map out all the physics of moving this cup of picking it up and putting it in my hand and putting it back down. I don't need to do any of that because I have an evolved perceptual structure that sees the cup as an abstraction of these more fundamental forces that exist. And all it does, all it needs to know is that there's a cup cup there and that that cup has, uh, you know, some now cold coffee inside of it and that that coffee, if I take a sip of it, will give me some kind of fitness payoff. Um, And so I don't necessarily need to even know the truth so to speak, of the cup uh, itself or of the action that I'm taking with the cup in order to operationalize uh, myself in the world to my benefit. Uh, how do you think about the relationship between truth and fitness? Earlier, it made it sound, you made it sound as if um, the definition of intelligence that you were positing at the beginning of this conversation sounded very, very close to fitness as such. Uh, so how do you think about that, uh, that tension and yeah, maybe we'll just, we'll leave that as, uh, as the, uh, penultimate question. I have one more.
1: (laughs) Well, I will say that this question could act as the, the doorway to an entire two hour conversation of its own. Um, Perhaps a series of two-hour conversations. let say, I mean, this is this is at some level the question. This is also, you know, it's a question that has animated a great deal of intellectual conversation over the past few years. Uh, you know, this was at the center of, you know, Harris and Peterson's uh, tension as well, because you know people like Peterson identify uh, identify truth and fitness in that sense
0: um, to conflate them. I'd say.
1: No. One could say a conflation. I mean, it's, I mean, you know, the the pragmat, there is this interesting question in terms of, well, at what scale. So, something that I have been fascinated by along these lines, and that I articulated briefly in the last essay of that Crypto Beyond Capitalism essay that I mentioned earlier, um, is something called Newcomb's Paradox and some of the implications that flow from that. I mean, people can find a description of it on. I think in the less wrong community, they have that. And they have a a page that is a bunch of other analogs to this game theoretic problem um, that we find in, in the world. And the the, the boiling oversimplifying and boiling this paradox down, um, it comes down to this idea that uh, there are, there are higher payoffs that are inaccessible. If one is unwilling to take a short term, um, you know, irrational decrease in payoff, right? So essentially There are there are optima that are precluded to greedy maximizers, one Mm -hmm. could say. Right. And the the question then becomes this interesting question of, okay, well, if we're talking about uh, fitness, right, outcompeting, quote unquote, truth, we have to have our definitions pretty well established. We have to be specific about what we mean by these things. Do we mean, you know, fitness over what timescale amongst how many populations, right? It's like if we're just running two populations in a sort of toroidal infinite landscape, like on an agent-based simulation, and, you know, we assume that's the universe, and then, you know, the quote-unquote truth-based population drops to zero and therefore has no more potential to ever re-enter the game, we might very well end up drawing the conclusion that short-term fitness maximizers are going to or 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 will displace truth seekers in all contexts um i think the games get much more interesting they also get much harder to create or to write about or t- coherently scientifically because the complexity just goes through the roof but they get much more interesting when we talk about highly heterogeneous uh, landscape or highly heterogeneous um populations or sets of populations that are playing strategies that are also co-evolving but that have different let's say epistome epistemic horizons uh of, of what they consider in terms of like I, I like thinking of this as temporal maps right so to the extent that let's say you and i can agree on the past the present and trust each other to create a, a potential map of the future and get and, and, and bring that into fruition we've established a sort of um, you could think of it as um uh a co- like a slice of a tempo- spatio-temporal map uh, that extends a four-dimensional time slice, right? We, we've sort of, the past, we have some level of coherence in terms of our agreement on what the past of the, that slice looks like, and we have some ability to trust that we can, we can interact with our knowledge of that to produce some future result. Um, and then the question is like, well, what is the resolution of that temporal map and how long can you extend it into the future and the past? And what's the association between extending it into the past with how far you can extend it into the future, which is like, you know, things like the Lindy question. Right. Um, And so there's all these fascinating questions that come up and you then get into this, you know, these questions that people like Brett Weinstein talk a lot about when he was responding to um, Peterson's identification or conflation of of, of truth and fitness with uh, these sort of um, uh, sort of like, What's this particular phrase for it? I'm, I'm blanking on it right now, but it's something along the lines of um, like uh, useful but untrue uh, narratives, right? That can mm-hmm. be applied to increase fitness, but don't map directly to, let's say, an empirical ontology. If we're going to restrict that empirical ontology to what can be derived physically um, in front of in you know in, in front of you in the here and now, mm-hmm. right? So. Again, it's a, the, the question that you ask, it, It's, a, I think it's an extremely interesting and necessary question to keep asking because it forces us to more adequately define the parameters of the conversation. And in so doing, I think we get a more, we, we increase our adaptive capacity to balance factors of, let's say, truth and fitness. But really, I think it's just, um, again, it comes down to sacrifice over longer periods of time versus necessity and and concentration of 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 um it it boils down to sacrifice it boils down to what time horizon is your like what time horizon is governing your action in the present right and like is it the case that maximizing for a short-term local maxima is going to put you in a place that precludes you from continuing the evolutionary game right and I think that's why I'm a little bit hesitant to use the word conflation when it comes to the identification of or the, the relationship between quote-unquote truth and quote-unquote fitness because you can construct the landscape and the agents such that they are non-identified or identified, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Right, so. yeah, so –
1: I know that's a very sort of abstract way of, of getting to that point, but I, I really it is. I think it's it's absolutely nece- necessary for us to, when we talk about this, really specify the concrete question, the concrete problem in question, and the time horizons over which we're trying to solve it for.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And I, uh, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the word you were reaching for there was pragmatic uh, truth, but maybe not. Um, so.
1: I think Weinstein has a, a
0: very specific, there's like a very catchy
1: mimetic way. He, I'm just, I'm having a hard time. I'm a little cognitively fuzzy right now. Cause it's allergy season here. And my first time in this particular location and, and the tree pollen is like extremely intense and my sinuses are pounding. So I'm a little fuzzy. My memory's a little, a little, um, it's not fully there, but
0: pragmatic truth works. Yeah. Well, anyway, sorry, that was an aside. Um, well, Matt, uh, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Uh, I'm not exactly sure if we've, uh, we've really reached a resolution on these questions, but uh, that creates all the more reason to uh, continue having these kinds of conversations into the future. And I hope that we will at some point. Um, before I let you go, uh, what, have you been, uh, what have you been thinking about? What have you been working on? And where can people find you? Sure. Um, so
1: in terms of thinking about and working on, um, a couple of things, but we didn't, we didn't even get into this, but I, I recently, um, well, somewhat recently over the past few months purchased some land and I'm working on taking a lot of the much more abstract worlds use and, and thoughts I've had and research I've done into complexity and, and trying to map it onto much more direct processes in terms of, um, management of, of, of local ecology, um, also turning that into something that is a, a productive space in terms of uh, our life, growing food, and, and all of these different interesting uh, embodied ways of looking at these abstractions, and using that as a lens through which to also further the research that I do. Um, another thing I've, I've been up to is is creating, you know, I've I've been slowly working on and kind of holding in the wings a project I've been working on called Future Align, which is a, a tool that tries to help people align their, their values, so their sort of long-term transcendent values that they would like to align their life with and, and basically map that onto different types of behavioral patterns across different time horizons, like daily, weekly, monthly types of things, um, and balance all of those tensions because I, I think that's a very interesting, complex problem and, and how do we actually build that for ourselves bottom up and then stitch it together with our families and communities and, and in theory, larger aggregates. So that's something I've been working on. Um, and then a lot of mathematical research to increasingly formalize some of my thoughts around emergent systems and and try to help create better grammars um, to talk about these topics. So that's been keeping me quite busy. Uh, People can find me currently mostly, I would say, just on Twitter, um, at Matt Prakowski. I'm going to be, I I have medium writings as well, so Matthew Prakowski, a medium, and then I am going to be creating a decentralized site for myself just to be a little more resilient and move all my writings there. And I'm going to be doing, I think, a lot more writing over the next year or so uh, in terms of summarizing quite a bit of the research that I've been doing over the past two years um, as I've moved, as I kind of withdrew from the synthesis and went back more to a pure research mode. So, yeah, that's where I'm at. Um, Look forward to talking to anybody and hopefully we can speak again. And uh, I don't think these problems will ever be solved, but perhaps we can make some more progress
0: on them. Well, thanks so much, Matt. Uh, It's been absolutely a pleasure, and uh, see you guys later.